0: Chapter 13 of My First Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ava'i in September 2019. My First Book by Various. Chapter 13 The Premier and the Painter by I. Zangwill as it is scarcely two years since my name which i hear is a nom de plume appeared in print on the cover of a book i may be suspected of professional humour when i say i do not really know which was my first book yet such is the fact my literary career has been so queer that i find it not easy to write my autobiography what is a pound asked sir robert peel in an interrogative mood futile as pilates what is a book i ask and the dictionary answers with its usual dogmatic air a collection of sheets of paper or similar material blank written or printed bound together at this rate my first book would be that romance of school life in two volumes which written in a couple of exercise books circulated gratuitously in the schoolroom and pleased our youthful imaginations with teacher baiting tricks we had not the pluck to carry out in the actual i shall always remember this story because after making the tour of the class it was returned to me with thanks and a new first page from which all my graces of style had evaporated indignant inquiry discovered the criminal he admitted he had lost the page and had rewritten it from memory he pleaded that it was better written which in one sense was true and that none of the facts had been omitted this ill-treated tale was published when i was ten but an old schoolfellow recently wrote to me reminding me of an earlier novel written in an old account book of this i have no recollection but, as he says he wrote it day by day at my dictation, I suppose he ought to know. I am glad to find I had so early achieved the distinction of keeping an amanuensis. The dignity of print I achieved not much later, contributing verses and virtuous essays to various juvenile organs. But it was not till I was eighteen that I achieved the printed first book. The story of this first book is peculiar, and to tell it in an approved story form, I must request the reader to come back two years with me. One fine day, when I was sixteen, I was wandering about the Ramsgate Sands looking for a tool. I did not really expect to see him, and I had no reason to believe he was in Ramsgate, but I thought if Providence were kind to him, it might throw him in my way. I wanted to do him a good turn. I had written a three-act farcical comedy at the request of an amateur dramatic club. I had written out all the parts, and I think there were rehearsals. But the play was never produced. In the light of after-knowledge, I suspect some of those actors must have been of quite professional calibre. You understand, therefore, why my thoughts turned to Tool, But I could not find Tool. Instead, I found on the sands a page of a paper called Society. It is still running merrily at a penny, but at that time it had also a Saturday edition at threepence. On this page was a great prize competition scheme, as well as details of a regular weekly competition. The competitions in those days were always literary and intellectual, but then popular education had not made such strides as today i sat down on the spot and wrote something which took a prize in the weekly competition this emboldened me to enter for the great stakes there were various events i resolved to enter for two one was a short novel and the other a comedieta the five pounds humorous story competition i did not go in for but when the last day of sending in manuscripts for that had passed I reproached myself with not having dispatched one of my manuscripts. Modesty had prevented me sending in old work, as I feel assured it would stand no chance, but when it was too late I was annoyed with myself for having thrown away a possibility. After all, I could have lost nothing. Then I discovered that I had mistaken the last date and that there was still a day. In the joyful reaction I selected a story called Professor Grimmer and sent it in judge of my amazement when this got the prize five pounds and was published in serial form running through three numbers of society last year at a press dinner i found myself next to mr arthur goddard who told me he had acted as competition editor and that quite a number of now well-known people had taken part in these admirable competitions my painfully labored novel only got honorable mention and my commedietta was lost in the post but i was now at the height of literary fame and success stimulated me to fresh work i still marvel when i think of the amount of rubbish i turned out in my seventeenth and eighteenth years in the scanty leisure of a harassed pupil teacher at an elementary school working hard in the evenings for a degree at the london university to boot there was a fellow pupil teacher let us call him Y, who believed in me and who had a little money with which to back his belief. I was for starting a comic paper. The name was to be Grimaldi, and I was to write it all every week. But don't you think your invention would give way ultimately? Asked Y. It was the only time he ever doubted me. By that time I shall be able to afford a staff, I replied triumphantly. Y was convinced but before the comic paper was born Y had another happy thought he suggested that if i wrote a jewish story we might make enough to finance the comic paper i was quite willing if he had suggested an epic i should have written it so i wrote the story in four evenings i always write in spurts and within ten days from the inception of the idea the booklet was on sale in a coverless pamphlet form The printing cost ten pounds. I paid five, the five I had won. Y paid five, and we divided the profits. He has since not become a publisher. My first book, Price One Penny Net, went well. It was loudly denounced by those it described, and widely bought by them. It was hawked about the streets. One little shop in Whitechapel sold four hundred copies. It was even on Smith's bookstalls. There was great curiosity among Jews to know the name of the writer. Owing to my anonymity, I was enabled to see those enjoying its perusal, who were afterwards to explain to me their horror and disgust at its illiteracy and vulgarity. By vulgarity, vulgar Jews mean the reproduction of the Hebrew words with which the poor and the old-fashioned interlard their conversation. It is as if English speaking Scotchmen and Irishmen should object to dialect novels reproducing the idiom of their uncultured countrymen. I do not possess a copy of my first book, but somehow or other I discovered the manuscript when writing Children of the Ghetto. The description of market day in Jewry was transferred bodily from the manuscript of my first book and is now generally admired. What the profits were I never knew, for they were invested in the second of our publications. Still jealously keeping the authorship secret, we published a long comic ballad which I had written on the model of Bab, With this we determined to launch out in style, and so we had gorgeous advertisement posters printed in three colours, which were to be stuck about London to beautify that great dreary city. Why saw the black hair of fortune almost within our grasp? One morning our headmaster walked into my room with a portentously solemn air. I felt instinctively that the murder was out. But he only said, "'Where is why?' Though the mere coupling of our names was ominous, for our publishing partnership was unknown. I replied, "'How should I know? In his room, I suppose?' He gave me a peculiar, sceptical glance. "'When did you last see why?' he said. "'Yesterday afternoon?' I replied wonderingly. "'And you don't know where he is now? Haven't an idea. Isn't he in school?' "'No,' he replied in low, awful tones. "'Where then?' I murmured. "'In prison.' "'In prison!' I gasped. "'In prison. I have just been to help bail him out.' it transpired that Y had suddenly been taken with a further happy thought contemplation of those gorgeous tricolored posters had turned his brain and armed with an amateur paste pot and a ladder he had sallied forth at midnight to stick them about the silent streets so as to cut down the publishing expenses a policeman observing him at work had told him to get down and why being legal-minded had argued it out with the policeman the haut from the top of his ladder the outraged majesty of the law thereupon hailed why off to the cells naturally the cat was now out of the bag and the fat in the fire to explain away the poster was beyond the ingenuity of even a professed fiction-monger straightway the committee of the school was summoned in hot haste and held debate upon the scandal of a pupil teacher being guilty of originality and one dread afternoon when all nature seemed to hold its breath i was called down to interview a member of the committee in his hand were copies of the obnoxious publications i approached the great person with beating heart he had been kind to me in the past singling me out on account of some scholastic successes for an annual vacation at the seaside it has only just struck me after all these years that if he had not done so i should not have found the page of society and so not have perpetrated the deplorable compositions in the course of a bad quarter of an hour he told me that the ballad was tolerable though not to be endured he admitted the meter was perfect and there wasn't a single false rhyme But the prose novelette was disgusting. It is such stuff, said he, as little boys scribble upon walls. I said I could not see anything objectionable in it. Come now, confess you are ashamed of it, he urged. You only wrote it to make money. If you mean that I deliberately wrote low stuff to make money, I replied calmly, it is untrue. There is nothing I am ashamed of. What you object to is simply realism. I pointed out that Bret Hart had been as realistic, but they did not understand literature on that committee. "'Confess you are ashamed of yourself,' he reiterated, "'and we will look over it. "'I am not,' I persisted, "'though I foresaw only too clearly "'that my summer's vacation was doomed if I told the truth. "'What is the use of saying I am?' the headmaster uplifted his hands in horror. "'How, after all your kindness to him, he can contradict you!' he cried. "'When I come to be your age,' I conceded to the member of the committee, "'it is possible I may look back on it with shame. "'At present I feel none.' "'In the end I was given the alternative of expulsion "'or of publishing nothing which had not passed the censorship of the committee.' After considerable hesitation, I chose the latter. This was a blessing in disguise, for, as I have never been able to endure the slightest arbitrary interference with my work, I simply abstained from publishing. Thus, although I still wrote, mainly sentimental verses, my nocturnal studies were less interrupted. Not till I had graduated and was of age did I return to my inky vomit then came my next first book a real book at last in this also i had the collaboration of a fellow-teacher louis cowen by name this time my colleague was part author it was only gradually that i had been admitted to the privilege of communion with him for he was my senior by five or six years and a man of brilliant parts who had already won his spurs in journalism and who enjoyed deservedly the reputation of an admirable Crichton. What drew me to him was his mordant wit. Today, alas, wasted on anonymous journalism. If he would only reconsider his indetermination, the reading public would be the richer. Together we planned plays, novels, treatises on political economy, and contributions to philosophy. Those were the days of dreams. One afternoon he came to me with quivering sides and told me that an idea for a little shilling book had occurred to him. It was that a radical prime minister and a conservative working man should change into each other by supernatural means, and the working man be confronted with the problem of governing, while the prime minister should be as comically out of place in the East End environment. He thought it would make a funny Arabian Nights sort of burlesque. And so it would have done, but unfortunately I saw subtler possibilities of political satire in it, nothing less than a reductio ad absurdum of the whole system of party government. I insisted the story must be real, not supernatural. The prime minister must be a Tory weary of office, and it must be an ultra-radical atheistic artisan bearing a marvellous resemblance to him who directs, and with complete success, the conservative administration to add to the mischief owing to my collaborators evenings being largely taken up by other work seven-eighths of the book came to be written by me though the leading ideas were of course threshed out and the whole revised in common and thus it became a vent-hole for all the ferment of a youth of twenty-one whose literary faculty had furthermore been pent up for years by the potential censorship of a committee the book, instead of being a shilling skit, grew to a ten and six penny—for that was the unfortunate price of publication—political treatise of over sixty long chapters and five hundred closely printed pages. I drew all the characters as seriously and complexly as if the fundamental conception were a matter of history. The outgoing premiere became an elaborate study of a nineteenth-century Hamlet— the bethnal green life amid which he came to live was presented with photographic fulness and my old trick of realism the governmental manoeuvres were described with infinite detail numerous real personages were introduced under nominal disguises and subsequent history was curiously anticipated in some of the female franchise and home rule episodes worst of all so super subtle was the satire that it was never actually stated straight out that the premier had changed places with the radical working-man so that the door might be left open for satirically suggested alternative explanations of the metamorphosis in their characters and as moreover the two men reassumed their original roles for one night only with infinitely complex effects many readers otherwise unimpeachable reached the end without any suspicion of the actual plot, and yet, on their own confession, enjoyed the book. In contrast to all this elephantine waggery, the half-dozen chapters near the commencement, in which my collaborator sketched the first adventures of the radical working-man in Downing Street, were light and sparkling, and I feel sure the shilling skitty he originally mediated would have been a great success we christened the book the premier and the painter ourselves j freeman bell had it typewritten and sent it round to the publishers in two enormous quarto volumes i had been working at it for more than a year every evening after the hellish torture of the day's teaching and all day every holiday but now i had a good rest while it was playing its boomerang prank of returning to me once a month the only gleam of hope came from bentley's who wrote to say that they could not make up their minds to reject it but they prevailed upon themselves to part with it at last though not without asking to see mr bell's next book at last it was accepted by spencer blackett and though it had been refused by all the best houses it failed failed in a material sense that is for there was plenty of praise in the papers though at too long intervals to do us any good the Athenaeum has never spoken so well of anything i have done since the late james Rankiman, i learned after his death that it was he raved about it in various uninfluential organs it even called forth a leader in the family herald and there are odd people here and there who know the secret of j freeman bell who declared that i zangwill will never do anything so good there was a cheaper edition but it did not sell much then though now it is in its third edition issued uniformly with many other books by heinemann and absolutely unrevised but not only did the premier and the painter fail with the great public at first it did not even help either of us one step up the leather never got us a letter of encouragement nor a stroke of work I had to begin journalism at the very bottom and entirely unassisted, narrowly escaping canvassing for advertisements, for I had by this time thrown up my scholastic position, and had gone forth into the world penniless and without even a character branded as an atheist, because I did not worship the Lord who presided over our committee, and a revolutionary, because I refused to break the law of the land." I should stop here if I were certain I had written the required article. But as The Premier and the Painter was not entirely my first book, I may perhaps be expected to say something of my third first book, and the first to which I put my name, The Bachelor's Club. Years of literary apathy succeeded the failure of The Premier and the Painter. All I did was to publish a few serious poems— which i hope will survive time a couple of pseudonymous stories signed the baroness von s and a long philosophical essay upon religion and to lend a hand in the writing of a few playlets becoming convinced of the irresponsible mendacity of the dramatic profession i gave up the stage too vowing never to write except on commission i kept my vow and yet was played ultimately and sank entirely into the slough of journalism glad enough to get there inter alia editing a comic paper not grimaldi but ariel with a heavy heart at last the long apathy wore off and i resolved to cultivate literature again in my scraps of time it is a mere accident that i wrote a pair of funny books or put serious criticism of contemporary manners into a shape not understood in a country where only the dull are profound and only the ponderous are earnest the bachelor's club was the result of a whimsical remark made by my dear friend Eder of bartholomew's with whom i was then sharing rooms in bernard street and who helped me greatly with it and its publication was equally accidental one spring day in the year of grace eighteen ninety one having lived unsuccessfully for a score of years and seven upon this absurd planet I crossed Fleet Street and stepped into what is called Success. It was like this. Mr. J.T. Grain, now of the Independent Theatre, mediated a little monthly called The Playgoer's Review, and he asked me to do an article for the first number on the strength of some speeches I had made at the Playgoer's Club. When I got the proof, it was marked, ''Please return at once to 6 Bouverie Street.'' my office-boy being out and Bouverie Street being only a few steps away, I took it over myself, and found myself, somewhat to my surprise, in the office of Henry and Company, publishers, and in the presence of Mr. J. Hannaford Bennett, an active partner in the firm. He greeted me by name, also to my surprise, and told me he had heard me speak at the Playgoers' Club. A little conversation ensued, and he mentioned that his firm was going to bring out a library of wit and humor. I told him I had begun a book, avowedly humorous, and had written two chapters of it, and he straightway came over to my office, heard me read them, and immediately secured the book. The then editor ultimately refused to have it in the Whitefriars Library of Wit and Humor, and so it was brought out separately." Within three months, working in odds and ends of time, I finished it, correcting the proofs of the first chapters while I was writing the last. Indeed, ever since the day I read those two chapters to Mr. Hannaford Bennett, I have never written a line anywhere that has not been purchased before it was written. For, to my undying astonishment, two average editions of my real first book were disposed of on the day of publication, to say nothing of the sale in New York unless i had acquired a reputation of which i was totally unconscious it must have been the title that fetched the trade or perhaps it was the illustrations by my friend mr george hutchinson whom i am proud to have discovered as a cartoonist for ariel so here the story comes to a nice sensational climax re-reading it i feel dimly that there ought to be a moral in it somewhere for the benefit of struggling fellow scribblers but the best i can find is this that if you are blessed with some talent a great deal of industry and an amount of conceit mighty enough to enable you to disregard superiors equals and critics as well as the fancied demands of the public it is possible without friends or introductions Or bothering celebrities to read your manuscripts, or cultivating the camp of the log rollers, to attain, by dint of slaving day and night for years during the flower of your youth, to a fame infinitely less widespread than a prize fighter's, and a pecuniary position which you might with far less trouble have been born to. End of chapter thirteen.